Welcome to this episode of the Disease to Shore podcast on the topic of equine infectious anemia, also called EIA, and pyroplasmosis with Angela Pelzel-McCluskey, DVM-MS. She is a national equine epidemiologist for the USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service Veterinary Services. We've talked to Dr. Pelzel-McCluskey in the past about the rise in EIA cases in the United States, but the cases keep coming. According to confirmed reports from the Equine Disease Communication Center, in California, there have been dozens of confirmed cases of EIA this year, plus cases in Arizona, Iowa, Ohio, Alberta and Saskatchewan, Canada, and multiple locations in Texas. So Dr. Pelzer McCluskey, why are we seeing this rise in U.S. cases of EIA and sometimes pyroplasmosis? And what can veterinarians do to educate and help protect clients? Thanks for having me today, Kim. I think uh, the reason why we're seeing more cases is twofold. First of all, I think it's some better awareness. So I think the message is getting out that horses that have participated either currently or formally in quarter horse racing are at higher risk for iatrogenic exposure to equine pyroplasmosis and equine infectious anemia. So I think that part's really good. The other thing that we're seeing is that the popularity of illegal, unsanctioned, or bush track racing is increasing. And this is due in part to a lot of communication by social media. They're getting a really large following of not only more participants in bush track activity, but more fans, racing fans, um, have migrated away from sanctioned racing and are are instead attending these um, illicit bush track events on the weekends. Um, So all of that activity has led to a lot more horses being involved in the racing in that venue. Can you tell me, Dr. Pelzel McCluskey, how are we getting some of these illegal racehorses that are coming in and bringing this these problems? Yeah, it's a good question, Kim. So we, as you know, have have heard about a lot of border activity along our border with Mexico. We also have a lot more horses that are crossing illegally for a variety of reasons. We have people that are participating in racing in both Mexico and in the U.S. and are moving horses illicitly back and forth without officially presenting them for import. We also have a, a group of horses that are um, have buyers here in the U.S. for a higher value for sale here in the U.S. And so they're moving horses illegally via Mexico to fill that market uh, because we have buyers for all different kinds of horses, uh, Andalusians, Lusitanos, Frisians, warm bloods um, from other countries are now moving um, in high volume across that southern border illegally um, because there are buyers here in the U.S. that want to pay money for those animals. Just to stay with that for just a minute, I know you and I have talked about this before. Sometimes the U.S. buyers don't even realize whether they're coming from South America or even Europe, that some of these horses are coming in illegally. They appear in the United States. They have a history that seems legitimate, but we don't know what kind of diseases they brought in because they've never been checked. That's exactly right, Kim. It's a huge problem. So buyers in the U.S. who are working through a broker or other individuals who find horses for them in other countries, they may not know how the horse is actually physically arriving in the U.S. And while all of our U.S. brokers are using um, confirmed legal channels, um, they're flying horses into our animal import centers and using all the right processes. We have other individuals who have broken into this market that are marketing horses and illegally moving them across our southern border 
um, rather than presenting them for official import. Um, and so the receiving end, the person who's buying the horse in the U.S., may not physically know how the horse arrived here and may not know the, the disease risks associated with that movement. They may know the horse is an import. They may know that they're dealing with someone um, overseas to purchase the animal. But the details of how the horse is arriving in the U.S. may be unknown to those buyers. And that's that's a little bit scary. No, that's a lot scary. I'm just going to flat out say that that's scary. Okay, so we have horses that come in. We don't know their health or wellness status. And they're going to some of these bush track races. But I know you've also said that occasionally they come in and they're good enough that maybe they'll end up in a sanctioned race. I see that a lot, actually. So a lot of our pyroplasmosis or EIA positive quarter horse racehorses, when you track their racing history, uh, they typically are involved in both sanctioned and unsanctioned racing at some points in their career. And some of them you can see very clearly are moving back and forth between those two venues. So they'll run a sanctioned race um, one month and then they'll be missing from sanctioned racing for a few months and they're participating on the bush tracks and then you'll see them pop up again. Um, at a sanctioned race. So uh, people are capitalizing on the amount of money they can make with the multitude of races they're participating participating in. And so they do double duty with these horses and they just are trying to make win the most prize money no matter what the venue is. And for all of our listeners who think this is simply a, a, a West or Southwest problem, have we seen any of these uh, horses that have been traced back to uh, sanctioned and unsanctioned races anywhere else in the country? Absolutely, Kim. So, so far we have found 84 bush tracks in 24 different states. Whoa, 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 uh, wait, wait a minute. 84 bush tracks in 24 states? I have confirmed address locations for 84 bush tracks in 24 states. There's still many more out there. Those are just the ones that we have a physical address and we have physically located them and see that they're active. Um, that's shocking because the American Quarter Horse Association will tell you they only have about 40 tracks that participate in sanctioned racing. So this is clearly much larger with the venues involved than even our sanctioned racing. And again, just to make it clear, these 24 states are not just the 24 states that are west of the Rockies. They're all across the U.S. from coast to coast. And there, like I said, there are many more. There will be other states found with bush tracks that we haven't yet located, no matter where they, where they are in the U.S. Oh, my goodness. So let's go back and maybe do a little bit of refresher for the veterinarians on how these horses seem to be such a high population for EIA and pyroplasmosis, what, what's going on with them? So horses that are participating in bush track racing are getting um, a large volume and frequency of uh, injectables. So IV injections are very common. In fact, these horses are getting daily injections of something IV, and some of it may be innocuous, like vitamin buildups or bute or banamine or some sort of a um, you know, a muscle relaxer, some mild things like that. But many of the other horses are also getting blood doped. So we have direct IV administration of blood from one horse to another to increase its athletic performance. Um, we also have uh, IV fluid administration and 
dextrose and other supporting materials that are coming through an IV tube into the horse. Um, and that may be for recovery or for training purposes. And the problem is that the same rubber tubing set for IV tubing is being used between horses. And the blood tubing is being contaminated by blood from one horse and administered into another horse. And because these are blood-borne diseases that we're talking about, both equine infectious anemia and equine pyroplasmosis, are present in the blood and very small amounts of blood contamination um, can move from horse to horse via these mechanisms. So reuse of needles and syringes in this population is a problem because so many different injectables are being administered daily. And there's no rules in unsanctioned racing, right? So they get uh, drugs and other medications administered IV on the track immediately before they're loaded uh, into the starting gate. And so we have this on film. Um, there are many, many videos that you can find on YouTube and Facebook and other uh, social media sites that show how the horses are being handled. And, and we have um, a video of all these horses being injected with something before they're entered into the starting gate. Oh, goodness. Well, besides not being great for the horses, it's uh, really bad for the rest of the population because, as we know, these horses, no performance horse can maintain at a top rate forever. So these horses are getting out into the general population, which is where we're seeing some of these crop up. So for and no one is trying to say don't adopt these racehorses. But what kind of of suggestions do you make to the veterinarians who have owners that say, oh, I'm going to adopt this horse from a, a an auction or a sale or a former racehorse or it's a quarter horse? And what should the veterinarians immediately, you know, the, the lights should start flickering for them? Yeah, it's a great question, Kim. So any equine practitioner or veterinarian who encounters um, an owner that wants to purchase uh, a racing quarter horse or a former racing quarter horse for whatever purpose, the bells and whistles should go off at that point. Um, we need to have these horses tested for both equine infectious anemia and equine pyroplasmosis as part of their pre-purchase exam. This is something where we don't want your client the prospective new owner to end up with a diseased horse and all of the cost and potential treatment, or maybe we can't treat it if it's EIA and they're going to lose their investment in the horse through euthanasia. So uh, practitioners really need to be aware that horses coming out of this population, whether it's sanctioned racing or unsanctioned racing or completely unknown, but the horse has a lip tattoo and has clearly been in racing before, that would be a red flag that we need to have that horse tested for both pyroplasmosis and EIA before the owner consents to purchase the animal. And that's a, that should be a normal part of our pre-purchase examinations on these types of horses. And the thing about pyroplasmosis, okay, so I've, I've got a horse and if I want to take it to a competition or across state lines, we're pretty much going to test for EIA. But pyroplasmosis, that's, that's not something you might test for. So we could just be hauling this all around the country. That's exactly how we find these horses. We find equine pyroplasmosis positive horses sometimes years after they may have become infected with the disease. And it's simply because our surveillance testing right now is limited to active sanctioned racehorses. And so once the horse leaves that purview, um, it may never get tested for pyroplasmosis again, unless it's 
being sent for export or someone's just curious or it's ill and someone's testing it for that possible disease. But in many cases, they may never get a pyroplasmosis test again. And that's where we're missing disease um, going out into the general population and potentially serving as a reservoir to uh, infect other horses. And again, we kind of want to go back to the, hey, just because it's not a racing quarter horse, it could be an Andalusian or some other breed of horse. It still is a great idea to test them if you're the new owner for Pyro. It is. In fact, that's our other high risk group for pyroplasmosis. If you have a horse um, that has been previously imported, but you were not responsible for the importation and you do not have documentation, USDA paperwork that shows how the horse entered the U.S., then it's really a good idea for you to work with your practitioner and get an equine pyroplasmosis test. The reason I say that is we're finding uh, Andalusians, Lusitanos, Frisians, and warm bloods from other countries. Um, and they're clearly previous imports. They may have a microchip that indicates what country they came from. Um, they may have uh, registration papers that come with them that indicate they came originally from another country. But the receiving person doesn't know how the horse came in. And if it didn't come in legally, then it did not get tested for equine pyroplasmosis. Um, equine pyroplasmosis is an endemic disease in many of these other countries uh, spread by natural tick-borne transmission. So um, there is a percentage of the population in all these other countries where that is a normal disease that they are considered endemic for in these countries. And that means us being an equine pyroplasmosis free country, um, we're a different standard. And if they didn't come in through official import channels, they would not have been tested for equine pyroplasmosis and their infection identified so that they could not come in. And all of this, whether it's EIA or pyroplasmosis, when these horses are discovered, it's a big deal, not just for the client and the farm, but for the veterinarian who has to manage all the horses around these. It is a big deal, Kim. Um, for our equine pyroplasmosis horses, I would say the good news is that we do have um, a systemic treatment for them to clear them permanently of the organism. It doesn't work in all cases, but in the majority of horses, we are able to treat and clear them from their equine pyroplasmosis infection. But it does take time. It's not a fast matter. Um, and we have to wait for the horse to go completely antibody negative after we've removed all the pyroplasms for that horse to be released from quarantine. And sometimes loss of all that antibody may take one to two years. Um, if the horse has been infected for a long time, it's been seeing the organism over and over and creating antibodies to it daily. So we have to wait for all those antibodies to go away. And we need that horse to be test negative in the U.S. post-treatment to be able to release that quarantine. So the current owner may be loss of use of that animal for the period of time that it remains under quarantine. Even while we've shown it's cleared of the organism and it's not a danger, it's still test positive and it's not going to be able to move anywhere with that. And then there's always the issue of we are, the U.S. is a pyroplasmosis free country, but we do have some ticks in this country that can spread this disease. That's exactly why, Kim, we do not want pyroplasmosis infected horses to be turned out in pastures with competent tick vectors. And we do have multiple competent tick vectors in the U.S. that could be capable of transmitting this disease. Um, the fact that we've remained a, a, a Puro negative country to this point is wonderful, but we want to keep it that way. And unfortunately, we have some new ticks 
that are have, are now known as exotic ticks, but they're now established here. I'm thinking of the Asian longhorn tick, Haemophysalis longicornis. That tick is very capable of transmitting both Tyleria equi and Babesia cabali, um, and it can serve as a reservoir for those pathogens of equine pyroplasmosis. So we have um, the playing field is changing right in front of us because we have new vectors that have entered our country that are very capable of transmitting this infection. And so our status, we may not be able to maintain that status, having no tick-borne transmission longer term, if we're allowing equine pyroplasmosis infected horses to mix in with these populations of confident ticks. So we have the pyro horses that, again, when you get a horse and you think, oh, normal quarantine, put it out for a couple of weeks, make sure everything's good, take its temperature, they may never show anything, EIA or pyro horses. That's exactly right. So chronically infected horses with either pyroplasmosis or EIA, or in some cases, they're co-infected with both pathogens, which good is point. disturbing. Um, those horses may be clinically normal from the outside. They may be athletic and racing and training, and someone may not know the difference. Um, they will usually hold a low-level anemia as part of their chronicity. Um, so that is a clinical finding that you might see. But physically, the horse outwardly usually looks completely normal in a chronically infected case of either EIA or pyroplasmosis. And the thing about EIA is because the biting insects can be a natural vector, that small paddock you may have kept it from touching noses with other horses may not prevent that horse fly from transferring that to other horses on your property. That's exactly right, Kim. So actually, we use the 200-yard rule. So we've found that the mechanical transmission by horse flies, stable flies, uh, to banids, uh, so those are deer flies. Um, those have mouth parts that hold the blood from the feeding that they just had on a horse. And the blood has the EIA virus on it. That fly we found can fly up to 200 yards before those mouth parts dry out enough to actually kill the EIA virus on the mouth parts and prevent transmission. So if you have horses standing within 200 yards of an EIA positive, during an active vector season, you may get transmission in that situation. So part of our quarantine for EIA involves uh, keeping EIA infected horses at least 200 yards or more away from non-infected horses for the protection of the negative horses. And again, if you haven't tested a horse before you bring it to your property, the rest of your horses are then gonna be in quarantine. That's exactly right. So even while we're testing horses out of quarantine, so let's say we find an EIA positive horse on a boarding facility premises, all of the horses on that premises and all of the horses within 200 yards are going to be placed under state quarantine and tested out as exposed horses. So even when we remove that positive, get it isolated or euthanize it, we have to wait at least uh, up to 60 days to retest out all of the exposed horses in an attempt to ensure that they didn't get transmission and are incubating the disease um, when we first walked on the premises. So they get an initial test. And if they're negative at that point, we still have to do a 60-day releasing test. And sometimes we find new positives, which means the quarantine period has to start over for another 60 days. 
And and that can be a a long period of time to watch. Now, it doesn't mean that every horse is going to be exposed and have EIA, but you won't know until the 60 days is up and you test. And again, if you have another positive, then it starts over again. It resets the clock. That's true. It's unfortunate, but it does happen. So what else do we need to know about this situation where you have horses that basically, you know, are carrying diseases? They're in a parent. Um, what can veterinarians do to better protect the horse populations of their clients from these diseases? Well, Kim, I think uh, equine practitioners need to spend more time talking to their clients um, about the horses that are in their care and where those animals lived the rest of their life. You know, most of us receive a horse that we didn't breed it and raise it from a baby. We got it from somewhere else. And so there's a portion of that horse's history that we're blind to. Um, and practitioners really need to discuss with owners, what do we know about the past history of all the horses on their premises? And do those histories contain some sort of risk factor for a disease like EIA or pyroplasmosis? Um, if we find those horses, then those horses need to be tested for whichever risky pathogen we're talking about. But I don't think that discussion is happening on a regular basis. I think the practitioners are very focused on um, meeting the chief complaint why the owner called them out, right? And so there may not be as much discussion time about um, all of the other horses on the premises that the veterinarian may not be seeing that day for a specific ailment. And that's a, a really great point. Today's Disease to Shore podcast is sponsored by the Prestige line of influenza vaccines from Merck Animal Health. There's a fine line in influenza protection. Only Prestige contains Florida 13, the most current influenza vaccine strain available. Prestige delivers advanced influenza protection against the most relevant flu strains circulating today. Get the upper hand on influenza with Prestige flu-containing vaccines. Learn more at MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com. Is there anything else that you think we need to talk about? I mean, maybe just reemphasize on some of these things that veterinarians are really need to be aware of because they can they can rock your world if these diseases get into some of your barns. I'm not sure that equine practitioners are aware of the volume of horses that are participating in bush track racing in America right now. And I cannot put a number on it. We do not know, but it's in thousands or tens of thousands at least. And this is a population that's overturning on a year to year basis because the horses are only still able to race and and win after their sanctioned race career for a couple more years. And then they're going to go on to some other athletic endeavor out of racing. And so the volume of horses coming out of this risky uh, population is increasing year to year to year. And these horses are going on and living the rest of their lives, potentially with one of these chronic diseases that may serve as a as a reservoir, um, and in fact, other horses um, that may not have ever participated in bush track racing or, or sanctioned quarter horse racing. So practitioners really need to be aware of the volume of horses that may be exposed in this population and the fact that we have nothing that's decreasing the activity related to bush track racing. It's only increasing. And the social media and the popularity of it um, in the general public 
is also increasing. So there's there's nothing that's going to reduce the number of exposed and infected horses coming out of population at this point. We've done a lot of education and outreach um, to both sanctioned and unsanctioned quarter horse race participants. And some of them get the message and many of them uh, don't get the message or don't care to acknowledge the message or do anything different with what they're doing. And that is that is probably one of the scariest things is that we really don't know which horses are carrying these diseases and which ones are um, free of them. And, you know, that that could have been two owners ago from the horse that you got. And the last two owners had no issues, but the last two owners didn't test. Exactly right. Uh, the way that, that horses change hands in the U.S., the frequency of that activity and the movement of horses geographically across the U.S. means that a, a new owner may be completely blind as to what this horse has done previously or where it's been previously. Um, so that's all serves as a risk. If you don't know where they've been, you don't know what they've been exposed to. And is there anything else that you would like to add for our audience today about this issue that's going on in the United States? I'd really like for equine practitioners um, to um, be aware of the volume of horses that are moving illegally across the southern border. That's another um, volume that I cannot put a number on, um, but we regularly intercept Horses being actively smuggled from Mexico, um, many different types of horses being smuggled from Mexico for a variety of reasons. Um, so that tells me that uh, I'm looking at the tip of the iceberg for what we actually intercept. Most of the diseased horses that I find that ended up being horses that were smuggled across from Mexico, um, we never intercepted them. I'm finding them with the disease after the fact, sometimes many years after the fact. And I think the most disturbing part of this is I'm finding a lot of these in the sport horse population. Um, and so while we've been talking about quarter horse racing and bush tracking, um, yeah. practitioners need to think of the other segment of, of, their, um, of their clients. We have sport horses that are competing at very high levels for many years in the U.S. that are carrying one or both of these diseases, and they may not have ever been tested for it. Um, pyroplasmosis is the one I'm finding most frequently because, as you noted, the EIA testing to enter um, events for sport horses it is a normal thing. That's a regular annual thing that they do. Um, but pyroplasmosis is something that they would not be aware of. So practitioners need to be aware of that high-risk population as well and talk to their clients about if the horse has never had a pyroplasmosis test with that client, um, they may want to get that done. And that is a great point. And I really appreciate you joining us today. I, I, I think we may have to keep touching on this because uh, every year we've talked about it and it just keeps getting worse. So it seems to be either either we're finding the cases more because we're getting better at finding the cases and doing the testing. Um, or we may have um, an increased incidence of this, and, and it's hard to tell which it is. Um, certainly for both of the difficult pathways we've talked about, the bush track racing um, and the illegal movement of horses from Mexico, we have no solutions in the U.S. at this time to stop either of those activities. And I think that's the key point here. There's, there's nothing that says that in, a, in the near future, 
um, this problem will go away. It will not. We have no solutions in the mix um, to turn off these spigots of disease risk. I'm just going to, before I do my little exit, I'm just going to repeat. It has been found in 84 different unsanctioned tracks have been located with addresses, bush tracks, in 24 states. So if you think that you are not seeing this in your area, how many states surround the state you practice in? And it's probably in one of those states if it's not in yours. There's a new tidbit to report as well, Kim. So just last year, for the first time, we actually found standard bread bush tracks. Oh, goodness. Um, so a different population, not quarter horse racing, but standard bread racing. And the interesting thing was um, they're actually riding these horses. They're not using the carts, uh, which looks to be a very jolty ride to me. But that is how they're racing them uh, is they're they're trotting and pacing them uh, with a rider on board um, in an illegal bush track setting. So I don't know what all. Um, different injectables those particular populations are getting, but um, it's a similar cadre of people involved. And so I can imagine that um, we have similar problems there. Well, and with the price of horses going up and the number of horses being bred down in this country, I'm, I'm sure people are going to end up being offered one of these horses at some point if they are, are looking for them. So again, just Let's be alert, aware, and try not to pass these diseases on to other horses. Great idea. Love that plan. Okay, well, we want to thank everybody for listening to Disease to Shore. And really thank you, Dr. Pelsel McCluskey, for joining us today and, and helping educate us so that we can be kind of the bulwarks that stop the spread of some of this. And a special thanks to our 2022 sponsor, Merck Animal Health. You can listen to Disease Du Jour, of course, on any of your favorite podcast networks. And if you have any questions or suggestions, send an email to me at kbrown, that's the letter K Brown, at equinenetwork.com. Disease Du Jour is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC.